You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judge. Well, we've got a special edition of the Talk of Fame Network for you today, and actually it's from our new home in SB Nation. But uh, to hear it, you're going to have to join us in the Wayback Machine. Yeah, go way back to the Wayback Machine and go all the way back to September 1987. Now, Goose, I'm going to ask you, any idea what you were doing? Can you remember what you were doing in 1987, September? Yes, sir. I was covering the Kansas City Chiefs and quite an entertaining show on the picket line by striking players that included shotguns, Pickup trucks and fisticuffs. Ron, can you top that? I can't top that, but I can remember telling my then employers at the Boston Globe that I would not cross the players' picket line. And uh, they respected that, which I appreciated, and didn't ask me to cover the scab games. But uh, I also remember being out there with the players and writing a very sympathetic story about them, only to get an angry call the next day from a guy claiming that a number of them had gone to a concert in Providence and crossed the picket line to go inside the same night. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> wow. So, so to make did, you wonder about the, the athletic union movements, you know what I mean? So you, you didn't have to cover Pickett's last charge, is that right? I was not. Uh, I, was on, I was on the outside. I watched the buses, you know, some of those yeah. things, but I, I didn't yeah. have to cross. Well, I, I was covering the Chargers, and, and, and this time 30 years ago, I was covering that ugly 24-day strike, uh, the last NFL strike, that included replacement players, uh, some violence, as you know, Rick, you were talking about angry owners, GMs, and, and approximately uh, 15% of striking players who crossed, as you mentioned, around the picket lines. In the end, of course, one of the most memorable experiences in my career, honestly, because it was so unique. Yeah, the NFL players decided to take a stand for agency in 87, and after playing the first two weekends of the schedule, they walked out on strike, hoping to shut the league down. But the teams anticipated the strike and started laying the groundwork for replacement players and replacement teams before the players ever walked out. The NFL canceled the games in week three to give its teams two weeks to practice before resuming the schedule with those replacement players. They would play three games before the union caved and the striking players returned. The free agency would come six years later after a lengthy court battle. Well, Gooseman, in recognition of that event, we're going to devote most of today's show to the 1987 NFL player strike. Speaking to former replacement players like Joe Dudek and Kelly Goodburn, former veteran Gary Plummer, and former coach Dave McGinnis, all of whom played parts, and I think crucial parts, in a period recognized and really immortalized in an ESPN 30 for 30 piece. You ought to watch it. It's pretty good. And you know what? If you don't watch it, get with us and do some time traveling because we're going to do it right now. We're going to the NFL player strike of 1987, and it's coming up next on the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, this is week three of the NFL schedule, of course, and for those old enough to remember, meaning the three of us, <laughs> week three had special significance in 1987. Ron, can you remember that far back? Can you get 1987? Does that work with you? I remember that better than 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Me too. That's the way it goes. Well, anyway, uh, we, we, we do think it had special significance because it was when the NFL players called a strike that lasted 24 days. Now, what made this strike unique was that the league, I mean, the NFL decided in its infinite wisdom to hire replacement players, guys who played in the CFL or USFL or, or just played, showed up, and, and counted the three games they played toward the season record. Now, that didn't go over well with striking players, but, of course, these were the guys who crossed picket lines, and, and there were guys like Joe Montana, Randy White, Joe Klecko, LT, meeting Lawrence Taylor, not LaDainian Thompson, Steve Largent, Doug Flutie, numbers of those guys. And approximately 15% of the striking players, as I mentioned before, they did it. And remember, 
Goose, remember the last game played before it ended? Yep. Monday night between Washington and Dallas. And the Redskins had nobody cross the picket line. And did Danny White quarterback that game, Goose? Danny White, Tony Dorsett, Tutal Jones, Randy White. Yeah, and you know what? Washington won 13-7. And, of course, later that season, Goose, they beat Denver in the Super Bowl. You know, that, God that is game, good. That game likely accelerated the demise of the Cowboys. You know, once the, the shining started league, they finished 7-8 that strike season, then sank to the bottom of the NFC East in 1988 with a 3-13 record. Bum Bright sold the team. Tex Schramm and Gil Brandt were forced out. Tom Landry was fired. I'm not saying that's all because the franchise's stars crossed the picket line, but it underscored the internal strife on the Cowboys then. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things was the teams that took those replacement games seriously, like Washington and Denver, they made it to the Super Bowl, and, and teams like the Giants, who didn't, right. suffered, and there are other teams that suffered as well. Uh, the one thing that it reminded me was that pro football players, uh, and you've heard me sort of rail about this before, you? they just were never willing to suffer for long for the greater good, while baseball's biggest stars never crossed the picket line. Right. And they were not going to benefit anywhere near the way the rank-and-file player was going to, but they didn't cross. And consequently, they have all kinds of perks today that NFL players keep whining about, but uh, you reap what you sow. Well, Ron, that, isn't that because the baseball players' union is stronger, much stronger than the, the NFL no players? No question. Union? No question. I mean, you know, but the, you know, the union comes down to its members. You know, the yeah, members right. were stronger, you know. Right. It's funny, you know. You think of football players as, you know, what they are, they're gladiators. Or, well, you're not a gladiator when you actually got to stand up for something, apparently. <laughs> uh, you know, then the right. baseball players were gladiators. Hey, Ronnie, what's your favorite story from that strike? Uh, well, my, one of my favorite ones is uh, uh, while picketing uh, the Bengals training facility, Boomer Zayasen, who was one of the guys who did say, say out, was one of the highest paid uh, uh, players at the time. And he decided he was going to prevent the bus uh, from, from taking the replacement <laughs> players in. He was making $1.2 million a year, and uh, he then sits down in front of the bus like Mahatma Gandhi, <laughs> and I'm not moving. You know, so two months later, the strike's long been broken. The real players are back. Cincinnati's playing Pittsburgh. He throws for 409 yards against the Steelers at home. And as he's walking back at the end of the game, uh, a fan throws a cup of beer on top of him because they were still mad at him that a guy making a million bucks went on strike. jeez. <laughs> Goose, man, that one's going to be tough to top. What do you got? Oh, I got the fun times on the Chiefs picket line. You know, Paul Kaufman and Dino Hockett, Hackett pulled up in a pickup truck one day with shotguns screaming, <laughs> quoting them, looking for scabs. You know, then there was a fight at Arrowhead involving... Otis Taylor, the franchise's legendary receiver and, and striking linebacker Jack Del Rio. The KC replacement team was winless and terrible, but the striking veterans still gave us a lot to write. Shotguns. And Uncle Jed wasn't with them, huh? Jethro <laughs> Bodine? Oh, my God. No freedom, um, no football. There you go. That's right. Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, some GMs didn't take it seriously. And Ron, as you uh, referenced, George Young of the Giants, he didn't. He thought the idea of replacements players was a joke, so he didn't hire really competent guys. And, and it cost him, as you said. I mean, the Giants went 0-3, and they missed the playoffs. Now, I covered a team, which was San Diego, that did take it seriously. Um, and they were they were smart. GM was uh, Steve Ortmar, and he said, you know what, we're going to win these games. And they did. They went 3-0 and and in the end of however. They missed the playoffs, too, because they're the Chargers. <laughs> but uh, but they found – they did find some decent players during that time. And one of them was a defensive lineman named Joe Phillips – who became a starting goose. I know you remember him because he later went on to Kansas City. And there were a lot of players actually that came out of there. Steve Bono, signed as a quarterback of Pittsburgh strike team, led the Steelers to two victories in three games. They kept Bono after the strike, and he went on to play 12 more seasons with five teams, 
He won a Super Bowl as a backup quarterback with the Niners in 89. Went to the Pro Bowl in 1995 as a starting quarterback of the Chiefs, guiding them to a 13-3 record in the top seed in AFC that year. Eric Kramer played for the Atlanta strike team, went on to quarterback the Lions, taking them to their only NFC title game in the last 60 years in 1991. <laughs> Ray Brown, wow. Mark Logan, Mark Pry- Mike Pryor, Derek Brills, and Kelly Goodburn all parlayed careers as replacement players into Super Bowl rings. Kelly Goodburn, who we have coming up, by the way. Hey, Ron, uh, quick question for you. You remember the attendance for those games? I mean, really nobody came. In fact, I think there was a game in Philadelphia, which is strong union town. (laughs) There are a lot of guys there who sound like Rocky Balboa. They look like him, too. But (laughs) were something like 4,000 people there to show up? Well, you're right. And I'll tell you a great story about the Philadelphia. The Bears were going to go play there. And, of course, Philadelphia is a strong union town. And, right. And there were a lot of rumors of potential violence on the picket line uh, and a sort of union-backed effort by other unions as well as the players' union to stop the game. So the Bears woke the players up at dawn and bust them to Veterans Stadium. They arrived at the stadium at 5 a.m. to avoid the picket lines. And they went inside. And most of them fell asleep on the floor of the locker room. <laughs> And finally, they woke him up, and they won the game 35-3. to three, So there you go. <laughs> Good wake-up call. Hey, Gooseman, black mark in NFL history, or, or was this an innovative solution to a work stoppage? Well, the players it? did what they felt they had to do. The owners did what they felt they had to do. You know, the fact that the NFL was willing to proceed with replacement players triggered the collapse of the strike. The name players, the Montanas, Dorsets, Largents, who decided to cross the picket line and return to work undercut the strike effort. Given the owners a resounding victory, a huge black eye, but nonetheless a victory. Well, one guy who wasn't involved, and I said was not involved, and came along about, I don't know, 10 years later, a little bit later, is former Chicago linebacker Brian Erlacher, who not only is up for the Hall of Fame class of 2018, but is the subject of this week's State Your Case, brought to you by our own Ron Borges, <laughs> who stated Erlacher's Hall of Fame case on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, this week. And who is here to tell you why he might make him, and I said might make him, a first ballot selection. Ronnie? Well, you guys know I'm not big on that first balloting, but Brian Urlacher may be the unluckiest future Hall of Famer in history. Uh, he became eligible this year for the first time, and many feel he's a career, his career was first ballot quality. Uh, problem is there's only eight linebackers in history that have that designation, and the likely ninth. He's also a first year of eligibility this year, Baltimore's two-time NFL defensive MVP, Ray Lewis. So where does that leave Brian Erlacher? Probably headed to Canton soon, but maybe not as soon as some would like. Now, there's no shame in that, though, because when he does arrive, no one's going to question what he's doing there. In his 13-year career, Brian Erlacher was named Defensive Player of the Year, Rookie of the Year, a member of the 2000s All-Decade team, an eight-time Pro Bowl selection, and he led the Bears to a 13-3 and record in Super Bowl 41 appearance when they had one of the stingiest defenses in history. He started more games than all but two Bears in their team's history, 180 starts in 182 games, trailing the all-time leader Walter Payton by only four starts. But things didn't start so auspiciously. His rookie season, after starting the opening game at outside linebacker, he found those restrictions of playing only half the field daunting. He got benched, and that benching turned out to be a blessing for him and the Bears. Then head coach Dick Duron returned him to the starting lineup at middle linebacker uh, two weeks later, and by the end of that season, he'd made 124 tackles, eight sacks, was rookie of the year, and Dick Duron knew he had one less position to worry about. In fact, Dick said he could get to anybody, anywhere, and he could beat your blocking scheme by technique, by skill, by going around it, by going under it, by going over it, any way he wanted to do it. By the end of his career, Brian Urlacher had made that clear. He finished with 1,354 tackles, 41 and a half sacks, 22 passes intercepted, and God knows how many deflected, 11 forced fumbles, and 15 recovered fumbles. 
as Mike Ditka said uh, when Orlacher retired, he doesn't have to apologize to anyone for the way he played the game. He's a future Hall of Famer. To describe his style as fast and furious only begins to explain, however, how he combined a linebacker's attitude, defensive back speed, and a computer's recall. When Lovey Smith became the head coach in Chicago and installed the Tampa 2, he quickly realized that Urlacher was more than a heat-seeking missile. He was a guided missile. His intelligence was never given its due, Smith says. He's un- his understanding of the game is among the best who ever played it. Well, if that's true, eventually he's going to be in Canton. Just maybe not this year. Yeah, I think eventually he is going to be in Canton. He is. Uh, Ron, thanks so much. We're going to take a break right here. But when we return, we'll sit down with former punter Kelly Goodburn, who turned the 1987 strike into a Super Bowl ring. You're here how when we turn. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our first guest parlayed a second chance in the NFL as a replacement player in a Super Bowl ring. Actually, it was his third chance. Hunter Kelly Goodburn went to camp for the Kansas City Chiefs in both 1986 and 1987, but was cut in each of those camps. But when the NFL players went on strike two games into that 1987 season, the Chiefs welcomed him back. He was not only the best player on a winless Kansas City strike team, the Chiefs kept him as their punter when the strike ended. He wound up punting two more seasons in Kansas City, then three more in Washington, where he earned a Super Bowl ring in 1991. And now, well, now he's one of our guests. Kelly Goodburn, thanks for being here. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Kelly, NFL teams were building their strike rosters long before the players went out on strike. When did the Chiefs tell you they wanted to have you back in the event of a strike? You know, I think it was the best of my recollection. It maybe was like a, a week or maybe the first part of uh, the first week of, of their regular season. So you know, a couple weeks before the strike happened, two or three weeks maybe. Mm-hmm. Now you'd been in camp uh, the previous two summers. Uh, so you knew the Chiefs players. You know, They were your summer teammates. Did you have any moral dilemma about crossing their picket line? What kind of a decision did you have to make? Well, you know, I, I mean, I had tried two years to unsuccessfully get on with the Chiefs, had a tryout, then with the Bears, and, and didn't make that. And so I was done. I went, I started my student teaching and was moving forward. And uh, the Chiefs called and said, hey, we'll give you $5,000. If if the strike come if the strike is real you get you're our punter if not you keep the five thousand it was a no brainer for me <laughs> um, I was done I mean I, I my 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 trying with days were over at that point so I figured what the heck what do I got to lose um, you know I, I I tried and tried and tried and it just didn't work out I thought it t- it would take two miracles to make it the NFL. <laughs> Sounds like a smart career decision. Hey, Kelly, and we're speaking with Kelly Goodburn, former punter for the Chiefs and Washington Redskins. Kelly, you know, I was out in San Diego then uh, covering the Chargers, so I saw you guys. And, and, and I remember the Chiefs made national headlines even all the way out to San Diego. Yes, true. But during the strike, when a, when a bunch of your striking players showed up at Arrowhead in a pickup with shotguns, then of yeah. course the, there was that picket line scuffle between – Otis Taylor, who was scouting then for the Chiefs, and, and Jack Del Rio, now the uh, coach of the, the Raiders, and, and that time was the team starting outside linebacker who was on strike. Anyway, th- there, was, there was a scuffle there, and, and I'm wondering, did you ever fear for your safety, your safety, during the four weeks you were employed during that strike? 
Well, that day I did. <laughs> we were we were all in our hotel room, um, and you know, killing time. And you know, what do you watch? You watch. You put it on the sports channel, and 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 they're showing you know that uh, these guys in Kansas City driving around with shotguns in their trucks, and we're like, geez, what the hell do we get into? You know. And uh, I remember driving down to the stadium in the in the the Greyhounds, and, and we stopped for about 45 minutes, and I go, God, this can't be good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we drove in and went under, I think we went under um, the uh, in between uh, Royal Stadium and Arrowhead, and, and uh, the, the gate closed down behind the bus, and that's when I kind of knew we may be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, I remember sitting in the office of head coach Frank Gans the week of the first straight game, and him telling me, Quote, our goal is to punt the football. Frank knew you were the best weapon on his team, and if you were on the field, that means the offense wasn't turning the ball over. Did you think the strike games would could become full-time opponent with the Chiefs, or did you just view this as another chance to get on tape? I, I just viewed this as another opportunity, I mean, and and one that I really wasn't even thinking about. I, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't counting on a strike to happen, and it was just, kind of a final opportunity um you know that came about and i i just thought well you know uh what do i got to lose you know and um it worked out okay <laughs> i'm saying well once those guys showed up with shotguns you had a lot to lose i suppose like rick said the chiefs decided to keep you on the team after the strike um do you have any difficult uh, moments sharing the locker room at that point with the players, especially on a team that had been so militant? Well, you know, I, lucky for my my position was punter, so I didn't have to practice, you know, and hit heads and 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 do tackling and all that. I, I remember, I, you know, there was some pretty intense uh, practices right after that when the guys they kept. I do remember that. I do remember. Some awkward situations that were, you know, but um, I, you know, I just think the players back then. I mean, they they were bitter about the replacement players, but I think they were just more mad because they weren't making any money. You know, this was their time to make the money during the season, and it just and it, you know, they were giving it up, and so, um, you know, once the once the season started and, and uh, you know, it just kind of wore off a little bit. We're speaking with former punter Kelly Goodburn on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, Kelly, since you mentioned those awkward situations, obvious question, um, how long did it take before the NFL's inner circle of players stopped viewing you as a replacement player and really started accepting you as a legitimate NFL player, how long before it took them to view you as one of their own? Well, uh, you know, right after the strike ended, they kept like five of us, five or so, if I remember right. And, you know, one of the questions asked was, are you going to, who, who's going to be your punter this week? And, and the chief said, well, we're going to stay with our original guys. And so I was like, here we go again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, and then the punter said he was hurt, 
and he couldn't go. And he goes, you get ready to punt this week against San Diego. And then our head coach came in and said, you're playing Sunday. And um, so I I was the starting – I was the punter the first week back. And I, I think I remember my first punt, I hit it 48 yards out on the seven-yard line. I got a few high fives, but not many. <laughs> but I did get some. <laughs> hey, Kelly, I'm just wondering, has there, have you felt that much pressure at any other time in your career as that first game? I mean, you really had to prove yourself to the rest of that team and to your head coach. Was that as much pressure as you felt in your career? You know, um, I was really punting well then. And, um, uh, you know, it was... You know, it just, it's, I, I just, I was punting well at that time. And I think that's where some of the reasons why he, Coach Gann said that. Punting, I mean, I was really punting well. And, and then, but I, I ran into a few stumbling blocks along the way on the next two or three games where I thought I had it going. And then all of a sudden I lost it a little bit. And so I had a few shaky moments that first year. You had it going in 1991. By then, you were at the Redskins. You wound up winning the Super Bowl that year. Is it almost a fairy tale existence coming from where you were to where you? It were? is. It it is. I mean, it just uh, it's. I've, I you know, I thought it wasn't possible, and and then to have it all work out the way it did when, uh, you know, I I struggled so long to get on the Chiefs team and then I finally did and then I got cut and I thought it was oh this is bad and you know but then I understood it was a business and and uh, was fortunate enough to get picked up by the Redskins and then geez the next year we had a had a wonderful run and and won the Super Bowl it was it was, it was just unbelievable really I was blessed truly blessed you know had it not been for the strike Kelly and uh... And had you not been given that opportunity to, to kick the football and, and have your skills, you know, appreciated, how do you think your life would have changed? Would you, would you, would you have spent thirty years in a classroom teaching, always wondering what might have happened? You know that, that that's a good question. Um, I probably would have. I, I probably would have been a teacher and a coach. Um, yeah, and I look back that, at that. Um, when, when I made it on the team, I kept thinking, okay, if I for every thirty or forty thousand dollars that I make here, it's one less year I have to teach. <laughs> <laughs> but. Hey, yeah, Kelly, I'm, I'm just wondering when, when you hear about the 1987 strike today. Um, you know, certainly, as we mentioned, uh, ESPN's done a full-length feature on it on their 30 for 30 what comes yeah. to mind what comes to mind is it is it is it positive feelings is it good feelings or do you think back of the the turmoil i mean what do you think about when someone mentions the 87 strike well you know i i just i really hate the word scab i i, yeah. I and you know they that's what they titled that but um and then they turned it into a you know these guys all deserve super bowl rings you know and I, and I understand all that, but it, yeah, it it, it was uh, a, a unique experience. There was a lot of different individuals there. It was. I remember one time. It was toward the end. Of course, you never knew. You was always like, "Okay, strikes over, strikes over." This could be our last practice, right? And I remember we always got on the bus to go to the hotel. 
And toward the end when it was like, okay, this could be really our last practice, uh, I remember the equipment guys coming in and saying, okay, we're not leaving until you guys bring back your helmets and shoulder pads and toilet paper. And, I mean, <laughs> guys were taking everything. <laughs> hey, hey, Kelly, unfortunately, we're going to have to go, but I tell you what, I love your stories. Thank you so much. Right, thanks, thanks for joining for us. And, you know, guys. well, thanks for the memories, Kelly. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, okay. <laughs> Take care, thanks, guys. Okay. You got it. That was Kelly Goodburn, punter for the 1987 Chiefs. You covered him, Goose, right? Yes, sir. Good guy. Good guy. Well, he is a good guy, and he was a good guy. Great interview. Up next, it's the two-minute drill, and I'm asking the questions. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, we've heard what it was like to be a replacement player. Now, now we're going to hear what it's like to be replaced. We're with former linebacker Gary Plummer, who started the USFL and later with the NFL San Diego Chargers and San Francisco 49ers, and who captained that Chargers striker team, or the strikers who were outside the gates during those 24 days. I covered the Chargers when Gary was there, and while there was no violence, there was the daily egg toss at the buses, ferrying players to and from practice. I covered that team, and, and I remember Gary and, and others watching replacement pro players. I know they, they're called scab. Sometimes it's scab practice from a small hill overlooking the practice field. That was one of my favorite places, Gary. And laughing at what they saw and yelling at players and coaches is actually pretty comical. What was that all about, it was, Gary? It was awesome. I, you know, it, was, it was really funny because... The first day, uh, you know, guys were shouting things, and I guess I came up with a couple of good one-liners, and then suddenly they tossed me the bullhorn. And so you know, not only was I using my own wit, but everybody was throwing lines at me, and it was just, there was, for example, I don't know if you remember, there was the Rent-A-Center, it was one of those, you know, place oh, yeah. where you can get oh, yeah. a TV or VCR or whatever the heck it was. And, you know, I, I had some kind of joke about the center that was there that was probably about 400 pounds. And I said something about, I think you guys made a mistake when you went to the renter center and everybody was just cracking up. And the interesting part was that it was like, I was the MVP of the first practice with all the coaches and everyone's laughing. The second day, we did the same thing. I got a call from my linebacker coach who said, you need to put the bullhorn down and you need to stop. <laughs> Otherwise, you might not have a job when you get back. It was instantaneous, the, you know, the 180 flip-flop on the yeah. coaching staff. Yeah, you know, Gary, it's, it's hard to believe that was 30 years ago this week. And I'm wondering... What do you think of when someone mentions that 87 strike to you? It Probably what I think of is just how inept the Players Association was. We had meetings frequently, and literally by the time you got home, you were getting a phone call from one of the Charger reps asking you if you called and talked to a reporter because the NFL executives already knew what our strategy was for the next week. It was 
I mean, every single turn we made, the uh, the NFL owners beat us to the punch. And, you know, it shouldn't be surprising. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly wasn't a victory for the players. It was only a victory in the courts that enabled us to get free agency you know, later on down the road. Gary, is there something about that strike that still sticks in your craw? Um, it, it actually sucked when, you know, you're getting phone calls from coaches, you know, saying, hey, this uh, this guy who happened to be a sheriff in Solana County or something, and uh, Mike Thomason's playing really well, and, uh, you know, you could be out of a job in a couple of weeks if, you know, if you continue to, you know, with your histrionics. And I was, it was just, it was bizarre to me how coaches changed uh, their alliance in, in a heartbeat. And, you know, clearly the ownership, uh, you know, controlled them and, and, and signed their checks. So you have to understand that. But it was, you know, there's so much talked about loyalty in professional football and we're a family and family went out the window real quick. <laughs> glad you said that because i've said that many many times this is like the adams family this is not a family you know? yes yeah. well one of the things that was i thought was really interesting is we were all kicked off every time we heard about a player crossing the line because it was it wasn't even a question here in san diego uh the leadership was fantastic and it was a you know it was a team of old veterans and you know truthfully that's why we weren't very good because it was Don Coriel hanging on to, you know, a lot of guys that were great in the 70s and in the early 80s that had seen better days. Um, but what it enabled us to do was, you know, we literally had practices almost every day with Dan Fouts running them, which wasn't much different than the normal practices, even when Car- Coriel was there. Um, but what was weird is when guys were crossing, we were just pissed off. And I never understood it until I went and played for the San Francisco 49ers and understood what Eddie DeBartolo meant to the players. And literally, there's a 49er family with Eddie DeBartolo. And the loyalty was unbelievable. And trust me, had I been with the 49ers, when that strike happened, I would have crossed the picket line the first day. That is, that's a guy that is willing to do anything for his players, and you, you know, want to show your loyalty by uh, doing anything for him. No Charger family with A.G. Spanos? <laughs> Absolutely none. And un- amazingly, those genetics were passed down clearly. <laughs> Ronnie? Uh were you angry at the scabs for crossing the line or the NFL for counting the games or the way the coaches sort of turned on you? All of it. All of it. It was a, it was a really strange time, and, uh, and it was kind of scary, too, because, you know, as Clark had mentioned, I had played three years in the, NFL, in the USFL. Donald Trump and, you know, all of his uh, amazing foresight, you know, flushed the USFL down the toilet. And, um, you know, I had been out of work for a year and a half waiting for the contracts of the USFL to, to go away so I could play in the NFL. Then you play in the NFL, 
you know, I wasn't real established. I started, you know, most of the games uh, my first year. And then, uh, you know, it was the second year. I'm thinking, hey, I'm taking off. This is going to be great. And the strike happens. And, and, you know, it was it was one of those precarious situations. You didn't realize that, you know, know if you're going to have a job uh, after it was all finished. But um, that was that was the bad part. The great part was uh, there were a couple of really good players that uh, that stuck with the Chargers. I mean, they were loyal to those guys. I think they kept over ten guys, but three of them specifically were damn good players. Uh, one guy they made in USA Today named the All Joe team after, which is Joe Phillips. Um, he improved our our defensive line dramatically along with another guy, German guy named Blaze Winter, who'd been cut a few times in other places. And I can't remember his name, but we called the guy Cowboy. He was about six foot nine and he had big old flaming red hair and he wore cowboy boots and a cowboy hat everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was just this country strong dude. Um, and they improved our defensive line in a heartbeat. So um, there, there are some good memories of that year. We're speaking with former linebacker Gary Plummer on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, and, Gary, we talked about uh, players who did cross the picket line, and you said as you went up to San Francisco. And, by the way, for our listeners, you went up to San Francisco the same year I did, which was 1994. Y- you got a lot of attention. Uh, me, not so much. Uh, I, don't, I don't quite get that. But, <laughs> but anyway, you, you went up there. Yeah, and you understood what it was about. It really was a family uh, up there, and it was completely different. But anyway, those players did cross, or some of those players crossed the picket line, but you didn't. So how tough was it to play with some of those, oh, scabs, I, I don't like using that word either, but scabs who made it. And you mentioned defensive lineman Joe Phillips. He was a really good player. He's the first guy that comes to mind. How difficult was it to play with them after the strike concluded? I mean, how hard was it to be in the same huddle with guys who had taken your jobs for three weeks? So this is really, you know, this is going to segue into something that's going on right now. There's one thing that is honored and and revered in professional football, and that is, can you play? That's it. Doesn't matter what race you are. Doesn't matter what religion you are. Doesn't matter where you are on the pay scale. Can you help us win? That's all that matters. And so, yeah, we, you know, we were jerks the first week to Joe Phillips and Blaze Winter and the rest of them. But when we saw that they could play and that they could help us, you embrace them. And um, it, where I'm saying this dovetails into what's going on currently, this big argument with Kaepernick, look, if he could play, he'd be playing. End of story. I don't care what the motivation is for you know all this garbage that you're seeing out there trust me nfl coaches nfl owners they want to win and if you got a guy out there that's going to help you win you're going to sign him the guy's a distraction and that was part of the issue with what happened to the 49ers in that strike year of 87 they had so many guys that crossed it did create uh, a lot of dissension. It just, it, it's, it's just amazing to me that there's this controversy in the NFL right now about Kaepernick. Let me just tell you right now, if he was on the 49ers when all of us were there, he would have never made it onto the field, not because of his ability or inability. 
nobody would have allowed him on the field to be a distraction during the game. If you want to protest after the game, congratulations. You know what? Grab a flag, run around Candlestick Park, do your thing. That's on your own time. When you start messing with the ability uh, for players to focus on the one thing that they're supposed to do on game day, uh, then, you know, now you're trying to take money um, out of my pocket, and it's not going to happen. I mean, I, pe- people have asked the question. I said, it wouldn't have just been me. There would have been a couple of dozen guys that wouldn't have let him out of the locker room until the national anthem was over. Mm-hmm. You, you want to do your protests? Congratulations. Do it after the game on your own time or before the game on your own time. So, that, again, that just dovetails into – you know, some of the issues that happened during that strike year. Yeah, Gary, you, you fought for free agency. Well, you didn't get it then. You did five years later. But that wouldn't have been possible without that 87 strike. Did you ever get the feeling that players later appreciated what you did for them? Um, you know, maybe. Uh, maybe every once in a while it, it happened. Clearly, it, it's it's. Out of the minds of the current players, when you get somebody like Richard Sherman saying that they should all be paid as much as NBA players, well, you know, for a Stanford guy, that's not very smart since there's five starters versus 22 starters, uh, 82 games versus 16. I mean, I'm not you know, a mathematician, but I can do that much math. So, um, you know, it, it, it is strange. Uh, and I have talked to current coaches in the NFL and they say the climate is different. Um, I think that uh, there was some appreciation for it, you know, in the 90s. But clearly, I don't, I don't think there's any appreciation for what went down then uh, now. Hey, Gary, we're going to have to get going here. But as always, many, many thanks. Love to talk to you. We'll talk again. Thanks for the stories. Uh, that was great. And uh, sorry to get you started on Colin Kaepernick, but love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. That was former linebacker Gary Plummer. And, Ron, I bet you don't agree with what he said about Colin Kaepernick, right? No, but I agree. I agree with staying out, baby. No freedom, no football. 55% of the growth, shut him down. Yeah. <laughs> and, Goose, I thought it was interesting what he said, too, about, you know what, we wouldn't have let him out for the national anthem. I never even thought about that. Well, that's now it's everybody's being politically correct. Yeah, okay. Well, up next, we're not going to be politically correct because we've got our two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, I know that whistle, and so do you. It means we're going to our two-minute drill, and I've got it this week. So, guys, let's get started. Which NFL player should the next hurricane be named after? Sua Cravens. One day he's there, the next day he's gone. (laughs) Hurricane Brady, just for you. (laughs) <laughs> oh, when and where does Sean Spicer appear at an NFL function? He'll handle the Ezekiel Elliott appeal. Exactly. He'll be standing in front of the courthouse saying the league's victory is the biggest legal victory since Brown versus Board of Education. <laughs> Cleveland. True story. Cleveland is favored this weekend for the first time since 2015. Does that say more about the Browns' improvement or this week's opponent, the Colts? It says the Patriots were right to trade Jacoby Brissett. <laughs> It says Vegas has a sense of humor. <laughs> what did you learn about Zeke Elliott last week? As Elliott goes, so go the Cowboys. I learned when the going gets tough, Zeke gets going. <laughs>
backwards. <laughs> okay. What did you learn about Dak Prescott last week? He needs the legs of Zeke Elliott to thrive. He's no Zeke Elliott. He's going forward. <laughs> At the Chargers LA opening, team president Dean Spanos was booed. True. Booed by the home crowd. Why? His reputation as his own, as an owner has preceded him. He got booed because he's got some TV viewers in L.A. access to the best national games every Sunday. Hey, speaking of L.A., USC outdrew the Rams and Chargers combined. What's up with that? L.A. doesn't care about pro football. Never has. Never will. You all ever see the Trojan Girls? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What's the over-under on games Rob Gronkowski plays this season? 11. That's what he's averaged in his first nine seasons. Well, after asking out of Sunday's game against New Orleans... After landing in a heap, I say he won't make it to Thanksgiving. Complete the sentence. Tom Brady throwing for 450-some yards. What at 457? I don't know what it was, Ron. At age 40, is like? Gordie Howe scoring 44 goals at the age of 40, 34 goals at the age of 50. Top that, Tom. It's like dunking on an 8-year-old if you do it against the Saints. Roger Goodell is getting a new contract. What would you pay him? Whatever the going rate is for the most powerful man in football. I'd pay him like the owners pay the rest of the players. NFL minimum plus unattainable incentives. That's the end of the first half, but don't move. Don't go anywhere. We have more on the 1987 strike coming up, including sit-downs with former replacement star Joe Dudek and former coach Dave McGinnis. That's next on the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. And I don't know if you guys saw it last week, but if you didn't, I'll remind you, uh, Hall of Fame running back and friend of the show, LaDainian Tomlinson, well, he said that if he could put one guy in the canton, it would be his former fullback and... Friend of the show, Lorenzo Neal, who, of course, also happened to be LT's presenter in Canton this summer. And, and that's okay, because remember when Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy had Donnie Shell present him, and then he called for Donnie Shell to be inducted in the Hall of Fame, too. But what bothered me about what LT said, guys, was, was his knowledge of history, or maybe his lack of it. I, LT's a smart guy. I, I know that, and you do, too. But in lobbying for Neal, he said, there isn't a fullback in the Hall of Fame, and I think it's time for us to start putting fullbacks in the Hall of Fame, and he deserves it. You know what? Actually, there is a fullback in the Hall of Fame. In fact, there are eight of them, including uh, Jim Brown and Bronco Nagurski. Uh, you know, there's also guys like Jim Taylor, Larry Zonka. I mean, guys, Taylor, Zonka, they're not exactly ancient history. Yeah, some folks tend to view today's game as the way football has always been played. They don't seem to be aware that once upon a time, fullbacks got as many carries as halfbacks. Tight ends were used as blockers more than receivers. Some quarterbacks didn't throw 50 times a month, much less 50 times a game. And defensive players could punish quarterbacks and ball carriers back then. It was a different game. It doesn't mean it should be a forgotten game. Yeah, I mean, the problem is, you know, with time passing, I mean, Bronco Nagurski is a Brontosaurus Nagurski as far as LP is concerned. <laughs> you know, he's 38, and, you know, Jim Brown's 81. Uh, you know, Jim Taylor, he figures maybe he's Taylor Swift's uncle. You know, I mean, historical perspective, you know, among football players, really, history is the last game film they watched. So no surprise, really, you didn't know that the fullbacks were once what we now call running backs. 
Bronco Degersi. Doesn't he play in Denver? Ron, that's <laughs> hey, listen, hey, Gooseman, if you had to put one fullback into day one from any era, who would it be? Roger Craig. He was a throwback to the old days when fullbacks were asked to run, block, and catch. He may be the last true fullback to ever play the game. Ronnie? I like Larry Centers, one of the most prolific pass-catching running backs in history. Uh, you know, he, he owns the NFL record for most passes caught by a running back and uh, a couple-time pro bowler and probably the last productive fullback we're going to see. Well, sorry, I'll tell you, but it's not unless like Lorenzo Neal has any votes here. Maybe we'll check with the other 45 selectors and see what they're thinking. In the meantime, we're going to check first with our sponsors. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Talk to Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. As most of you know, San Diego Chargers. No, they're not the San Diego Chargers. They're the L.A. Chargers. Yeah, well, they're the Chargers. They lost their home opener in L.A. And normally, that's bad news for their fans. Except, actually, it's good news for one former fan. And that's Victor Lopez, owner and operator of El Pollo Grill in Bonita, California, just south of San Diego. Now, Victor was so upset with the Chargers leaving town that he promised you got to get this, to offer a free taco to customers every Monday following a Chargers loss. Provided, of course, you say the not-so-secret password, Spanos Taco. And he's been true to his promise. Victor joins us now from Bonita. And, Victor, congratulations. The Chargers are 0-2. Yes, thank you. I'm very happy to to uh, hear that as well and, and know that they're owing to very happy <laughs> hey victor I, I saw what happened at your place this week lines were out the door what's been the response and and how many tacos do you estimate you've given away the past uh, two weeks well there, there was a line at the door and 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 uh you know it, last week it wasn't so much uh the hype this week for whatever reason there was way more hype uh, and, and and over the past two weeks, I, I figured easily a good 700 free tacos. I mean, 700 people have stopped by. Many have been, you know, old customers and many new customers coming from all, all parts of the of the city, the county. Vic, aren't you going to lose a lot of money? Who's who's paying the bill on this? Uh, you know what? I, I, a lot of people are saying that, and a lot of people think that. But honestly, people don't just come in for one taco. Uh, they, they, if they like them, which most, most everybody has, they, they order more, they order, uh, drinks, they order soda, they order, they order family meal, they order, order a bunch of stuff, desserts, and then they also do take home. And then they'll become, if they haven't never been here, they become a, a regular customer. Of course, they like the food, sure. which mostly everybody has. Yes. There you go. There you go. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, Victor, how'd you first come up with this idea? Uh, and why did you think it was, you know, good business to sort of be handing out free tacos? Honestly, it just came out of left field. Uh, watching the game last week uh, during Monday Night Football, I uh, I was watching the first quarter, and then I, I kind of got irritated just just by watching this uh, the L.A. Chargers, and 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 I decided to head out to uh, to the gym instead of watching the game. But when I come back, my daughter's still watching the damn game. And so I continued watching the fourth quarter, and it just came out. I said, you know what? If the Chargers lose, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my personal page, and I'm just going to announce, announce it to my friends and family and people that I don't know on my personal page that I'm going to give a free taco uh, the following Monday and Tuesday if they lose, if and when they lose. 
And it blew up from there. They lost and got a good response. And then all of a sudden this week, it just blew up more with everybody just sharing and and local media and also uh, other parts of, of the country have, that have have, uh, uh, have contacted me and interviewed me for, for what I'm doing. And honestly, this is just a healing, kind of like a healing uh, movement for, for, for anybody that, that still has a, an aggression towards the, uh, Dean Spanos and his, his crew. Well, Victor, that's why I think it's an ingenious idea, honestly. I mean, the, your customers may get free tacos, but you, you're getting free publicity, including this show. Now, my question is, what do you plan to do if and when they win? You're going to close your place down for the day? <laughs> I, I, that, I don't think I can afford that one. <laughs> wouldn't be able to do that one. You know, maybe we throw a, a big, uh, a, a bigger party each time they lose and make it bigger. The more times they lose, it make a big, a big party out of it. But uh, no, I could, I wouldn't be able to close it, close down. <laughs> Victor, have you thought about driving a food truck up to the Stub Up Center and just handing out all those tacos right after the game? People have asked me, but I think then I'd go broke. That oh, actually, I wouldn't go broke. There's only twenty-seven thousand people, <laughs> right. so it's not that much. <laughs> it's not that much. You know, not too many people caring. Half of those are are, are the opposing team, so <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It, would, it, it probably wouldn't do a dent to my wait, financial status. Wait till the Raiders get up there. You should give them out to Raider fans. There'll be more Raider fans there than there will Chargers. The Raiders will steal my food. They won't. They won't. Ask <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Now, now, what would you do if the Spanos family shows up after a loss and says, "Where's my tacos?" I'll, 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 I'll give them free food. They need. They seem like they want everything for free anyway. So I'll give them free food too. I'll give them more than just one taco. I'll give them the freaking whole griddle full of food. I think they need it. Hey, Victor, I, I'm just wondering. Ron's in Boston. Goose is in Dallas. I'm here in New York. When are we going to get free tacos? Can you ship the tacos to us? Do those go through the mail? Of course, of course. We'll ship some free tacos down to Dallas and everywhere, wherever you guys are at. <laughs> That's not a problem. As long as they, they maintain uh, nice and cold. <laughs> Victor, how, how long have you been a Charger fan, and who is your all-time favorite Charger? Um, I, I've been a Charger fan since I can remember, since I was a little kid. Dad brought me up a, a San Diego sports fan, and that came along with the Padres and the Chargers and and those are pretty much the only two, 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 two faithful teams that I've, I've, I've grown accustomed to and, you know, and got a tattoo of my, of the Chargers on my, on my calf. And unfortunately, I got a, uh, a boat that I custom made, had some Charger, Chargers, Charger, uh, bolts on, on the, on the seat. And, and, you know, I've, I've got full memorabilia on my, on my walls in my garage. I've, I tra- I've traveled to games. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it sucks now that I, I cannot do that. And, and Dean Spanos took away from my, my future memories and my kids' future memories because I definitely was planning and, and I did raise them Charger Padres. That's, that's what, that's what it's all about. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't born here. I was born in Mexico, in Tijuana, but, uh, top of the border. But, uh, San Diego, San Diego is definitely home, home for me. And this is where I'm planning to retire and, raise my kids and and no no football that means i can't i can't i, I can never i will never be able to root for an l18 that's just for me that's that's, that's a that's a sin in my household you know and for, for for dean dean to to just take that away and and not give a rat you know what it, it, it sucks because you know there's consequences 
to this, and I'm pretty sure he's he's paying he's going to pay for them uh, unless unless he has a plan, which we don't know. But doesn't his legacy mean more than just money? Which is I just can't understand why 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 he would do something with no explanation to any Charger fan or no apologies or no. Let's try to lure, not even trying to lure the, the the San Diego faithful to an LA team. You know, he just basically shut his mouth and just decided to just do it his own way. And I I hope, I hope and pray that if he falls on his on his on his on his face. And well, you know, I'm not a vengeful vengeful person, but but in this case, there's consequences, and and everything, every, all the consequences are, are are should hold should take place hopefully pretty soon. Well, thanks, Victor. Thanks so often, so much for spending time with us. And it's not often we get to say this, but here's hoping you get your wish and the Chargers lose again. <laughs> yes, yes. Keep on losing, Chargers, please. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Thank you. That was Victor Lopez, owner of El Pollo Grill in Bonita, California, and he's given away a taco to each customer the Monday following Chargers losses. Yeah, that's true. I was getting hungry talking to him, Ron. Hey, maybe <laughs> yeah, we too. can get him to send us one every Monday, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Just keep uh, up gold. Oh well, there's the signal that Dr. Dad is back, and he's not giving away tacos. He's giving away more info. And who's man? What do you have today? Well, Dan Marino was there back in 1987. So were the Marx Brothers, Clayton and Duper, one of the original Killer Bees. Glenn Blackwood also was playing for the Miami Dolphins that season. As were former five-time Pro Bowl middle linebacker John Offerdahl and Hall of Fame center Dwight Stevenson. 1987 also was the year the Dolphins opened Joe Robbie Stadium, a gleaming football palace in the Miami suburbs. So, Ron, who do you think threw that first Miami pass in the new building? Uh, if you Dan think Marino, of Dan Marino, you're wrong. It was Kyle Mackey. He also was the Ooh. team captain that day. Call it a bad case of extremely bad timing. The Dolphins planned to open the season the third week against the Giants. That game was canceled because of the strike. They opened fifth week at home against Kansas City with a strike team. Replacement players, replacement team. Dan Marino, by the way, was standing outside on the picket line. Only 25,000 showed up to see the game, but those strikers remain forever in the team record book. Page 92 of the press guide, all the stadium first. First pass, Kyle Mackey. First touchdown, Ricky Isom. First interception, Lifford Hobley. Who are these guys? I was there. I saw that game. On that day, those were the Dolphins. I remember those names, those players, but few, if any, others Oh, Mackie, wow. Well, speaking of the 1987 strike, Gooseman, we have more coming up on this special edition of the Talk of Fame Network with Coach Dave McGinnis and former replacement sensation Joe Dudek. They're coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Dave McGinnis, spent 31 years on an NFL sideline as both an assistant and head coach before sliding into the radio booth this season as a color commentator and radio guru for the Tennessee Titans. Coach Mack was a defensive coach on some great Chicago Bears teams in the 1980s, and later he took a four-year spin as head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. Now, Dave's been on with us before to talk about one of his favorite former Arizona players, and that's Pat Tillman, to be exact. And now he's back to help us remember the 1987 strike season. Hey, Mac, you're on with your Indianapolis Breakfast Club. Goose, Ron, and Clark. Thanks for joining let me, us. Let me tell you something. This is the least expensive I've ever gotten out of it, having you three guys together. I mean, seriously, I had to take this radio job to pay all the bills at Shapiro's. So, I mean, 
Is How we doing, boys? Great the, talking uh, to you. Is the, is the cook uh, in? Is the cook in at Shapiro's? The, yeah, look, if the cook's not in, we can stand outside in the snow until they find some oatmeal for us. <laughs> hey, Mac, uh, you're on Ditka's staff, the Bears in 87 when the players won on strike. There were some great players in that defense, players who were very good at Ditka, you and the Bears. I'm sure you developed a bond with the Mike Singletary's, Wilbur Marshall's, Richard Dent's, Dan Hafton's, Otis Wilson's. Did you feel at all that you were betraying their trust by coaching those spare bears? You know what, Goose? We really, in 87, you know, that uh, we, as coaches, we, we had no choice. I mean, because the games, you know, it, it was deemed that the games were going to count. And so basically, you know, we had no choice. Now, how you approached it and how your front office approached it, I mean, you had a choice whether you were going to, they were going to bring players in or not that could compete. But as far as coaching the ball games, we really had no choice. And really, you know, we'd come off of a 14 and two year in 1986. Had been beaten by Washington in the playoffs. Had started the season off by beating the world champion New York Giants on a Monday night football. I mean, we just drove them in that game. Came back and won our next game. I think it was against Tampa Bay. So we were two and zero. We were rolling. That was a really good football team. It was a team that. Uh, had failed to repeat off of the Super Bowl shuffle, and that team was ready to roll. I mean, we were going, and then all of a sudden the strike hits, and now we're faced with the fact that not only are these guys going to be out, but we're going to have to replace it with, with, with guys that we had no idea who they were. So Bill Tobin and his personnel staff and the Bears made the decision to go get us as good of players as they could. And then, of course, you know, and, and you know, Mike Ditka, you know, the Bears were kind of the team at the time, not kind of. We were, and and felt like that maybe if the if the if the if the real Bears would have chosen not to, you know, join the strike, that maybe other people you know would have joined in with them. And it, and it, but you know they chose to, and so we really had no choice as far as as far as coaching the players. And then once they said that these games are going to count, I mean, we were all in for that as far as. We weren't all in for the strike, but we were all in for those games counting, and we tried to win them. Well, how serious did you and Ditka, you know, take the spare bears? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you, I'm sure you looked at some of these guys and said, you know, that's not Otis Wilson. You know, that's Brian Wilson from the from the Beach Boys. I mean, how hard was it to take them seriously? Well, no, it wasn't really hard to take them seriously because they were very serious about it. And some of them, guys, it was, I mean, they were realizing life, lifelong dreams. I mean, you know, a lot of those guys came from around there. Of course, we had guys from, we had guys that came in from everywhere. And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. I mean, it was hard to believe that, that, uh, the situation we were put into, but it wasn't the, it really wasn't the spare bear's fault. I mean, they were offered a chance to, to you know, come on, man. To be, you know, you're a young kid. And you got a chance to to wear a Chicago Bear uniform and play for Mike Ditka. Are you serious? I mean, they were fired up. I mean, the, the problem that we had was, I mean, the first practice we had, you know, Ditka gave them a talk, you know, in in our meetings, and, and I mean, they were so fired up. And we had about thirty fights in the first, you know, ten <laughs> minutes of practice because guys were so jacked up and juiced up, and we had to, you know. Calm them down, and I mean, it, so the, they were they were all in, and then the Bears did a really good job of taking care of them. Now, you know, we kept them in a hotel off away from the facility. We had a guy named Kenny Geiger that was kind of their, you know, kind of their uh, escort, and kind of pulled them together and brought them in, and you know, I mean, so I mean, they developed a real because they were together all the time, and and you know, they developed a bond very quickly. It wasn't hard to take them serious. It was kind of hard for you know to believe. Now, you know, this was you know this. Was was starting, you know, my second year in the league, and I'd come in the league with the, 
you know, Super Bowl shuffle bears after they had won it and we'd gone fourteen and two and all of a sudden this is going on and I mean, it, it was it was surreal, but it wasn't hard to take those guys serious because they were serious about it. Hey, Mac, and, and we're speaking with former coach and now color commentator for the Tennessee Titans, Dave McGinnis, on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Mac, um, how difficult was it to coach up a group of players who, as you just said, came in from everywhere? And you said you had no idea who they really were. How difficult was it to coach them in just two weeks to play a game that, as you said, would matter in the standings? Well, Clark, I mean, I mean, if you're a coach, you're a coach. And so, I mean, it wasn't – I mean, it, what, what we had to do was be able to pare down what we did. You know, and, of course, defensively, you know, we, we went with a very basic, you know, Vince Tobin was a coordinator. I was a linebacker coach. We went with a very basic package. Our first game was going to be against the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, you know, Buddy Ryan and, and that group had not made a real big attempt, you know, to bring any players in. And so we were going to Philly to play. And so we, we pared the, you know, the, the, the playbook down. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. And the basic thing we were trying to do was get some of these guys in shape, you know, to be sure that they could last, you know, that their just body parts weren't going to just fly off, you know, and we didn't know how many games this was going to, this was going to take. And so we pared it down and then, you know, we, Flew in there to Philadelphia, and I mean that was crazy too because we fly in there, and then at the night meeting, the first thing Ditka tells us, all of us together, the first meeting we have before we even break up into groups is, "Look, guys, everybody, don't meet very long tonight because we're going to wake up at two thirty in the morning because we got to get across the bridge because we think that the the unions might block the bridge. We can't get to the stadium, so we're up at two thirty three in the morning and we're rousting out, and they bring a bunch of mattresses in from the hospital." And so, you know, we're, we're, we're sleeping on the floor in the old Philly dressing room. You know, you can hear the raccoons and the rats out there running around at three in the morning. We woke them up and we're sleeping in the locker room, just laying down. I'm laying down looking. I'm, you know, got, you know, in my locker with a, with a, with a, with a mattress from the hospital down there looking at the, here's Mike Ditka getting ready to lay down over here. And I'm, I'm going, okay, you want to be a big time ball coach? Here you go. And so then we, 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 they woke us up about 7.30. And, uh, you know, of course, Buddy was the head coach of the Eagles, and Jeff Fish was on that staff. Then we all went upstairs uh, in the stadium there and all had breakfast together. You know, they cooked <laughs> us breakfast in. And then we came back down and went out there and, and, uh, and played in, about, in front of about 4,000 people. I mean, it was impressive. <laughs> Mac, when's the, Mac, when's the last time you were involved in a football game where only 4,700 people were in the stands? Back in Snyder? Snyder, Texas. Versus, Snyder Tigers versus Sweetwater Mustangs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, and, uh, what, what was amazing, guys, is seriously, you know, they had the Philadelphia cops there and there on those big old huge horses. They had those horses and stuff. And I can remember Ed and Virginia McCaskey trying to drive in through and the, the, the picketers were there. I mean, guys, it was surreal. And, <laughs> and of course, you know, we had – I mean, that game defensively, I mean, it was crazy. Now, Jeff Fish and I talk about it all the time. I mean, you know, we, they 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 kicked off, and we went, and, you know, their kicker tried to cover the uh, the kick, and we knocked him smooth out. And uh, we, we looked up, and that dude standing over there next to Ditka. I mean, I mean, it just, I mean, come on, guys. Things are just, I mean, it was nuts. It really was. We brought a blitz. Vince Tobin called a all-out blitz, zero blitz every snap of the game. I mean, we had, we had I think we had eleven sacks that game or something like that. He ran zero blitz all the time because the quarterback was Guido Merkins. Come on, man. 
Well, speaking oh, of players, I mean, I'm, just telling, I'm just telling you the truth. Then we won the game. We're all fired up, and that's what you know got all the you know caused the problem. Because I mean, come on, man. And we, then then we're gonna. Then I think the next the next group we played was Minnesota, and, and you know we played them back home. And I remember that that the Bears, you know, the real Bears, they had they had an autograph session outside the Soldier Field, and. You know, they thought all the fans would come and just come to their autograph session and boycott the game. Well, they came and got autographs and came into the game. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it was so surreal. I mean, and then, and then you know, we got word that they were coming back in. So for the last week, guys, we had to coach. We coached the spare bears in the morning and then had to go down to Soldier Field and coach the real bears at night. <laughs> Wow. So I mean, yeah, you know what? And again, as I said, I've got I got some people that that came to me when I was still in L.A. Uh, you know, and wanted me to write a book. So that's going to be that's going to be several chapters in Coach Mack's book too. <laughs> book it <laughs> for sure, for sure. Now on that team, you had a backup quarterback by the name of uh, Sean Payton. Uh, did he give you any indication at that time that one day he'd be a head coach and a Super Bowl champion? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. You know, our quarterback was Mike Holinsey, and and for two weeks, I mean, we'd played against we, you know, we you know, we had we had played the first game against Philly, then the next game we played against Minnesota, and Holinsey had gotten beaten up, and so, you know, we brought Sean in. You know, Sean was a you know was a was a late arrival there, and then before the game, we were warming up that last game. We were playing New Orleans. And New Orleans had had a bunch of dudes come back across the line. So I think Hohensey, you know, Hohensey ended up being being a coach for uh, the, the arena team that Ditka owned. But anyway, the the you know Hohensey was a smart dude, and he looked he he figured out who was getting ready to play over there, and and he he knew his offensive lineman only had about another. 30 or 40 snaps left in them, and then their bodies were going to completely disintegrate. And so, I mean, so he came up, he came up lame before the game, said his knee was bad, he couldn't play. So we had to throw, throw Sean in there. And, uh, you know, we, we, we nearly won the game with Sean, and I don't think Sean even knew, you know, all of the playbook at the time. So, I mean, it was interesting, guys, very interesting. I mean, we had several guys on that. I mean, we're, we're going to have to stop you there. You're rolling. You're on fire. We're going to have to stop you there. Hey, Dave McGinnis, thanks so much for the time. <laughs> thanks for the memories. Anyway, that was Dave McGinnis. Up next is another of the strike players. That would be 1987 legend Joe Dudek. He'll join us right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Joe Dudek became a college football legend when he was the first Division III player to make the cover of Sports Illustrated's, and that magazine's preferred choice for the Heisman Trophy in 1985 over a guy you probably have heard of, Bo Jackson. Two years later, Joe made the NFL from a remodeling job. A three-time Division III All-American running back at Plymouth State, New Hampshire, Joe rushed for over 5,000 yards and broke Walter Payton's college football touchdown record with 79 before finishing ninth in the 1985 Heisman balloting. He became a cult hero, well, as well as a football hero, but was undrafted, spending a year on injured reserve with the Denver Broncos before being released among the final cuts in 1986. Ah, but then came the 1987 strike and the birth of the replacement players, and Joe Dudek had a decision to make. He's with us today to explain that choice and what it led to. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. 
I'm glad to be here. Well, Joe, you know, as you know, when you were released on that final cut in 87, the Broncos asked you to do something that you were reluctant to do, uh, and initially, I believe, didn't do it. Uh, you know, you just tell people, you know, what that was and why you made the decision you made originally. Well, um, I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, um, you know, my first year I was on injury reserve, and uh, it was a good opportunity for me to get to know my teammates and really get to understand uh, the, the the NFL and and the speed of the NFL and adjust to the different play style of the NFL versus Division Three. Uh, going into my second year, I had high hopes of, of making the team and, and thought I had a really good camp. And unfortunately, on the, on the last cut, I got the call into the coach's office to, to let me know that, uh, that I had been let go. Um, on the way out, uh, the player personnel director pulled me aside, and, and obviously they were anticipating the strike happening and, and asked me if I wanted to sign a contract. Uh, to, to say that I would play uh, if the players decided to strike. Um, at that point, uh, I thought nothing at all except my teammates and, uh, and, and the support I wanted to provide them and, and said I, I couldn't sign that contract and um, was sent packing and, and went back to Quincy, Massachusetts. So, Joe, what did you do after your release, and what did you think your football future was at that point? You know, I still felt, well, first of all, I, I basically, uh, my, my brother was uh, rehabbing uh, three family homes in Dorchester, Mass., and I basically was helping him uh, with that um, while I was waiting for the call. But quite frankly, if you weren't willing to cross the picket line, there really wasn't that many opportunities until they could get everything figured out. So I knew I was going to be in limbo for a little bit uh, working for my brother. Hey, Joe, um, as you know, after two weeks, the, the strike was called and, and no games were played in this week, which is week three. But when it was announced they would play in week four with replacement players, what were you doing then? And, and did the Broncos call? And what was that call like? They did. Yeah, still still doing the same thing with my brother. And, and yes, I did get a call and, and basically you know, made me the same offer that they made me when I was leaving uh, the, the building uh, after being, you know, one of the last cuts. And I basically, you know, gave them, you know, the, the, the same response that I did back then, and that was that I wanted to support my teammates, and I, and I felt that I couldn't cross the picket line. So you refused to play that first week, and as I recall, at Broncos, they get plastered by the Houston Oilers in their first game, and, and uh, they persist. And the following Monday, uh, uh, you get another call, and you made a different choice. And um, you put down the hammer and put on the pads, I guess. But why'd you do that? What what made you change? Well, you know, you're right. They they did get beat pretty good, uh, forty to ten. I think the score was by Houston. And I got the call early Monday morning, you know, asking me to to reconsider. And um, you know, at first I was going to say no, and uh, but uh, I was told that. A lot of the players across the league were starting to, to cross the picket line. Uh, for the for the Broncos, the two most notable names was um, was Steve Watson, wide receiver, and Billy Bryan, the starting center, and a few others. And for the Raiders, it was going to be um, Bill Pickell and, and Howie Long. And basically, you know, what they sold me on was the the chance of a lifetime. The, the reason that they felt they lost to Houston was they couldn't really run uh, the, the Denver Broncos offense uh, the way that I knew. Uh, the offense versus the other running backs that they had in camp. And they said this was a, a golden opportunity for me to prove myself in the NFL and, and to be able to play on Monday night football in front of, uh, you know, the loyal Bronco fans. And 
and play against, you know, some real players in the NFL. And, you know, I thought about it and it didn't take me long to decide that, you know, uh, you come to a fork in the road in life and, and you got to decide which way to go. And when they framed it up that way and the fact that others were already crossing, I just felt that this was an opportunity I couldn't pass by and, and decided to take the chance. So did you have to cross picket lines out in Denver? Did, did you see and hear from striking players? And did anyone suggest that you not go in? You know, it's funny. I, uh, you know, I heard about hostile environments and, you know, across the league uh, towards players that were crossing. And I think from what I heard that was happening in week one when, when the str- strike was hot and heavy. But by week two, at least in Denver, you know, things had quieted down. Uh, there was picket lines, but none that you could see and none that you had to cross with, with uh, any type of um, animosity towards me. So basically for me, I showed up um, you know, at the practice facility and it was business as usual. We had Kelly Goodburn of the uh, Chiefs on earlier. He was talking about they had shotguns, rifles, a uh, scuffle in Kansas City. Did you hear about that in Denver? Well, that was the thing. I mean, you know, you were, especially at, you know during week one, you were hearing about you know, all these different stories across the league. I had heard, you know, just just about, I would say, a lot of anger at the picket line from some of the key players, uh, yelling at players crossing the line and so forth. And again, I, did, I went out and caught my flight and didn't know what to expect. But as I said, uh, by the time I got there, things had quieted down. And at least uh, uh, in my eyes, it was, it was somewhat business as usual going to practice facility and then going to the game. Well, you know, again, you know, at first it was it was a dream come true. I mean, to to and never in my wildest dreams would I have expected uh, to start in a Monday night game at Mile High for the Denver Broncos when I entered Plymouth State. And uh, again, I just took this like I did any other opportunity that presented itself throughout my career, and that's just to do the best I could and and uh, and uh, you know, hopefully uh, everything would work out my way and. Uh, you know, I still remember. I think the the you know the Bronco game against the Raiders was uh, one of the highest um, attended games by the fans in, in during the strike, over sixty five thousand fans, and it was great for me because even though it wasn't a true NFL game, there was uh, you know true uh, starting players on both sides, and, and to me, with the atmosphere of Mile High, for once I felt uh, that I could finally prove myself at that level. I believe, Joe, you ran for 128 yards uh, in that game and scored a couple touchdowns, and you also played in front of more people than your entire career at Plymouth State. Isn't that correct? (laughs) (laughs) I I really did, and and, and I tell you, the energy in in the stadium that night was incredible. I mean, uh, you know, I felt like uh, what it must be like to be John Elway on a week-to-week basis because, you know, it really was the featured and focal point of the offense, and... uh, it, it really brought me back to my college days, and it was great that uh, that thanks to my, my my teammates, I was able to perform, and we were able to get a big win. Well, after that game, you go to Kansas City uh, to play the next week. You're the focus of the offense again. You know, you had the you know, 100 yard games, just like being at Plymouth State. You kept running for 100 yards uh, every level, and then you get to Kansas City, and you find out that NFL coaches uh, can make adjustments pretty quickly. I guess um, when you got out there for that game. What was the difference between what you had seen that first week and what you were looking at in that game? Well, you know, a couple of things. Um, you know, we knew that Kansas City was a tough place to play. I mean, the year before, uh, it was it was you know pretty much known that 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 the Broncos probably their toughest opponent on the road was going to Kansas City. So we knew we were going to go into a hostile environment. And again, 
loyal fans of Kansas City were there, and 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 they were uh, they were ready to, to 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 cheer on their team. You know, for me, what what I remember is the fact that uh, yeah, NFL coaches do make adjustments, and uh, they realize that with the limited offense that 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 these strike teams could run, uh, it's going to be pretty simple to put eight guys in the box and and just stop the running game. Uh, which they did, um, but the fortunate thing for me was that we adjusted and and went to a passing game. Uh, Ken Karcher, who was the starting quarterback, him and I uh, worked a lot on on you know during during the preseason games and had a good good um, working and playing relationship with each other. And uh, we just started passing the ball, and and I was fortunate to get uh, five catches that day. And uh, again, we were we were uh, fortunate enough to win the game and, and get a big win against a division opponent. Joe, after that game, strike ends, most of the replacement players became displaced players. So what happened to Joe Dudek? Well, um, I think one good thing that came out of the strike games for players like Joe Dudek, who probably need a lot more seasoning and there really isn't a farm system, is that, you know, that, that they had the practice squad created from that strike. And so I was invited to, to be a member of the practice squad, which basically you're in the locker room every day practicing with the team and getting them ready for the game week in and week out. You know, walking through uh, at first, I didn't know what to expect. And, um, you, know, it was a, you know, it was a little bit of uh, awkwardness, I guess. Uh, people didn't know what to say. Uh, you know, we were still friends, but yet there was still that um, animosity towards the fact that that uh, you know that we crossed the line, but I think in Denver at least I can say that I think the players realized that you know the strike didn't work out in anybody's favor for the players, and the fact that uh, thanks to a few players like myself crossing, uh, we were fortunate enough to win two big games against division opponents, and I don't want to say save the season, uh, but if we lose those two games and go zero and three in the strike, uh, I don't think they get back to the second Super Bowl. Well, speaking of that Super Bowl, I will say you did save the season, as, as people should know. In 1987, the Broncos went on to their Super Bowl for a second straight year, in large part, Joe, because you helped write their sinking ship. Maybe you didn't save it, but you write it after they've been blasted the first week of the strike replacement games. Um, question, you, you get a ring or another opportunity for your trouble? Uh, I got another opportunity for my troubles. That that was the strange part. Um I know that when we lost the Super Bowl when I was on the um, when I was on the reserve, you know, I received an AFC Championship ring uh, for our efforts, you know, in that season. And then the following year, um, you know, again, I felt I contributed more to getting us to the Super Bowl, but uh, uh, I did not. Um, they did let me go right before the playoffs started. They had to bring a, a tight end in, and um, and they they re-signed me for the following year, but but sent me on my way. Uh, so I wasn't part of the team as they went into the playoffs, and you know. But I would have loved to have had an AFC Championship ring from that year because it would have meant a lot more to me uh, and probably the players I play with for the fact that uh, you know we contributed to the team's success that year. Joe, when you look back now, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you have a picture somewhere of you uh, slashing past Howie Long and leaving him in the dust somewhere in your office or your house, but uh, how do you look back on the experience now from 30 years away, and was it worth it? Uh, Any regrets? Uh, Happy you did it? I'm happy I did it because, you know, I was able to at least say to myself that I could play at that level. Uh, You know, playing in preseason games is one thing, but playing uh, in a real game uh, against, you know, starting players on both sides, 
on Monday Night Football in front of a 65,000 people. Uh, to me, you know, I, I at least was able to say that this kid from Plymouth State was able to, to, to perform at, at the highest level. And that allowed me, I think, to, to walk away from the game and, and find a career outside of the game for the fact that, um, you know, I got more out of the game than I ever could have expected. And I'm just so happy that you know, I was able to kind of uh, culminate my career with, with, with playing on Monday night and, and helping the team win. Joe Dudek, thanks so much for the time, and, and thanks for the memories. Really good talking to you. Uh, it's, it's, it's always great to talk about it. I really appreciate you, you uh, having me on tonight. You got thanks, it, Joe. That was New England legend Joe Dudek of Plymouth State and the 1987 Denver Broncos. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. That means we're almost out of time, which means we're going to the two-minute drill. So get me and Tom Brady on a roll. Here we go, guys. When does New Orleans realize that defense is part of football? After a coaching change. Exactly. When they hire a defensive coordinator. Where's Sean Payton next season? Pick a New York team. Any New York team. He'll be lipping off to somebody, but not a Saints player. Where's Chuck Pagano next season? On a Sunday morning NFL pregame show. Oh, I think not. Serving as somebody's loyal liege. (laughs) Where is Alex Smith next season? If he's wearing a ring, it's Kansas City. Like most NFL quarterbacks, at the bank. Where are we next? Ah, no, no. Which (laughs) 0-2 team makes the playoffs? None of the nine. Or, to put it another way, none of the below. (laughs) Tell me why I should believe in Trevor Simeon. Because the Broncos believe in Trevor Simeon. Because he's 10-6 and six as a starter, which these days make him Johnny Unitas. Marshawn Lynch boogied on the sidelines during the Raiders' demolition of the New York Jets. How soon before we see him on Dancing with the Stars? After his next retirement. I would say it's more likely he dances with Marcel Marceau. The NFLPA gave Colin Kaepernick its Community MVP Award. Whom would you have given it to? J.J. Watt. I'd have given it to Marshawn Lynch just to hear the speech. (laughs) Andy Dalton or A.J. McCarron? For the next two games, give him coordinator Bill Lazar a chance to work resurrect Dalton. In the meantime, McCarron warming up in a bullpen. The red-headed rifle still has a gun, but it's hard to shoot when you're on the run. Wow. He's a poet and doesn't even know it. Why is offensive line play so atrocious? Because teams never practice at game speed in camp or preseason, they aren't ready for game speed in September. And the other reason is, just because you're fat doesn't mean you can impede someone's progress. <laughs> impede. And why is tackling not far behind? Because you don't tackle in training camp, you don't tackle in practice, you don't tackle in games. Right, because no, nobody hits anybody until game day, and then they don't know how to do it. Former Bill GM Doug Whaley joined a tech company that specializes in injury protection. Why? He gets his nights and weekends off. Why? Because he hurt the Bills, so he's an expert in pain. That's the end of the game. <laughs> We'd like to thank Gary Plummer, Joe Dudek, Kelly Goodburn, Dave McGinnis, and Victor Lopez for joining us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us at this time and on this station next week. We'll be here, and we hope you will be too. 